Hi there, my name is Ben Eaton, and welcome to the Performing Musicians Podcast. In this podcast, I'll be chatting to a broad range of musicians, artists, songwriters about their experience in the music industry. We'll be talking about their dreams, their background, their career highlights, and a range of other topics relating to making a living inside this tough cutthroat industry. We'll also be discussing the current COVID-19 crisis and how it affects their income, their goals, their dreams, and what they think might happen next to them and the industry they love. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, guys, and welcome to the Performing Musicians Podcast. Um, today, I'm lucky enough to talk to Mr. Danny Toman, um, best known as one of uh, North London's preeminent soul men. How are you, Danny? I'm very, very well, Ben. Thank you so much for having me today on your podcast. No problems at all. Um, how have you been? Are you well? Um. To be perfectly honest, I'm recovering from a migraine at the moment, oh. um, but such is the case with my life, but I make do and I've been trying to have a productive day despite finding it quite difficult to see. <laughs> well, thank, thanks for taking the time, mate. I really appreciate it. Um, so can you, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? What, what do you do and how long have you been a performer? Well, I've been performing since I can remember. Um, it's always been the great love of my life to uh, sing and perform and generally make people happy with what I do. And what I do is primarily soul music, and that's singing, playing. I run a band, Danny Toman and the Love Explosion. I write my own songs, I arrange, and, you know, I have a few little musical side hustles, such as uh, some music for adverts and TV, you know, to help pay the bills, as it were. Nice. And you're, uh, are you born and bred in North London? I am one of those rare London music scene creatures, the original Londoner. Um, I seem to find uh, the more and more I do this, uh, the, more, the less and less uh, sort of born and bred Londoners there are here. Um, I actually think that's one of the reasons why musicians tend to feel their lives are very uh, enriched culturally because all the different musicians on the scene can be from all over the place and so you're able to gain uh, a greater perspective in some regards of of the world by the people that you meet yeah definitely it's a it's it's a bit of a um, united nations affair in london isn't it i've never i've never run into so many uh, italian guitarists and spanish percussion players and it's fantastic absolutely and everyone bling, everyone brings a, a different flavor it really is a melting pot yeah, it's lovely. And you're one of the, the, the rare unicorns, the actual original born and bred North London musician. I know, but, uh, we don't, you know, it might make me sound a little bit unexciting, but, uh, you know, we can do one of those DNA tests, and I'm sure you'll be surprised by um, where, where <laughs> I might have really originated from, shall we just say. Um, so can you have a bit of a chat about uh, sort of what first inspired you to be a performer? What, what was the thing that lit the spark for you? Um, I know that for a lot of people, it always seems to be a case of they heard this one particular record. And that is actually true for me in a sense. Um, but in terms of singing, that's always been something I've done because to tell you the truth, I was never a very well child. I was sort of always in and out of hospital with any different kind of disease you could think of. Nothing too seriously, but I, I dread to think about the impact it had on my family. But the one thing that I always knew that I could do to make people happy and to make people smile was to sing. For some reason, I've always been able to sing in tune. And from the earliest age, the music I've always had around me was rhythm and blues and soul music, especially Stax artists and uh, people like Wilson Pickett, like James Brown, Aretha Franklin. But the moment that I said I want to perform and do all of this is when I was seven years old. And it was the first time that I heard... The Beatles. It was the LP, A Hard Day's Night, on vinyl, and the needle dropped on that first big chord, and then within the second verse of that, I was thinking, I need to get guitar lessons, because I need to find a way that I can sing my own songs and accompany myself. I was already thinking that at the age of seven, and um, I dread to think what life would be like if I didn't have that moment. 
I'd wow. probably be much richer. <laughs> Undoubtedly. <laughs> um, can you remember your first gig? There are so many different milestones and first gig type events that I could think of. I mean, I remember the first professional gig I did, which was at university uh, in a small venue in Leeds called Carpe Diem. Um, when I was about 19 or 20 years old, but there was also being sort of seven or eight and playing Beatles songs in front of, you know, the whole school and assembly, um, which was, I would like to think, uh, a great uh, performing experience. Having said that, I remember the first time I did that before I'd even got on stage, um, the announcer had said, and now Danny Tolman is going to be playing whatever it was. I believe it was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is in the actual title song. And before I even started, the whole auditorium just started going, Danny, Danny, Danny. And, uh, you know, they talk about drugs and how musicians end up turning to drugs because they want to chase that high. Um, there really is no high like that. Yeah, I think, I think, you're, I think you're right there. It is, it is really sort of... A lot of the gigs you do, it's trying to, to tap into that little first spark that sort of really lit the fire, or the first the first show you ever ever got where people went, oh, you're good. And then it kind of varies as time goes on, and uh, the, the love of performing comes from trying to create that vibe where everyone is happy, everyone is enjoying it, everyone is having a good time, because people have difficult lives, and... Uh, the hustle isn't easy here in London. Uh, you know, you've got to go to work, you've got to make that money, you've got to pay those bills. And when you go and see a performance, you want to forget your troubles or you want to be made to feel good for a certain amount of time. And so I've always felt that it's been my responsibility when I'm on stage to kind of put my ego aside, and uh, which is ironic if you've seen me play because I do tend to go for that big... Uh, that big machismo type of uh, persona on stage. But it really, I find, is a way of actually including people and getting people in on the act, as it were. Yeah, lovely. And when you, when you talk about that machismo sort of aspect, can you discuss some of your biggest influences? You mentioned uh, some Stax artists, but who's sort of like, who, who's your North Star? My North Star probably is James Brown. Yeah. Um, he has that funky swagger in everything he does. Even if he's playing the most simple kind of music, you know that he means everything he is saying. And also the way he engages people with that gospel-style preacher act he does with the shouting and the yelling and the hollering and the dancing. You know, he is there very much to show that he is a professional at what he does and he is going to make you get on up. And that is really what I try and do very much. Yeah, awesome. Um, so you, you mentioned you had sort of a um, an early an early um, musical awakening. Did you did you have a lot of support from your family? Are they are they sort of are they supportive of what you do? Did you have to have a bit of a struggle? I think with every artist, there's always something of a struggle um, trying to get those they are closest to to understand what they are doing. But I have to say that my parents have been nothing but loving and supportive throughout uh, my entire journey. Maybe they haven't understood what I've been trying to do, but they have always said that it was pretty much inevitable that I would be doing what I, would, what I am doing and that it would be futile to try and stop me. Great. <laughs> so don't try and stop me. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so can you maybe um, walk us through like um, a career highlight, so something that sort of that light, you know, you look back at and smile. It could be a small gig, big gig, could be both. Can you have a chat about that? Certainly. I mean, I've had a lot of very, what I think some people consider to be very big highlights in my career for, for, for an old schlepper like me, you know, who's, who's always just hustling for the next opportunity. You know, one week I'm playing at some tiny restaurant and then the next I'm playing at the O2 Arena, which is a true story. I actually did do that last year and that was a big highlight for me. I was able to support... Uh, the funk legends cool and the gang uh which was an incredible experience in front of 10,000 people i never thought that would happen well it's not that i never thought it would happen but when it is there and happening you kind of can't believe it i was lucky enough to be able to see through that sort of about 10 minutes on stage and really start to enjoy myself with with the people there 
and I know a lot of people who saw me are now, you know, very good followers on, on the social media, and I have, you know, it's always nice to chat to them. But then we get the smaller things. So, for instance, um, me and my band sold out Pizza Express Live last year, which was a great thrill for us. You know, it's become Pizza Express Live, for those of you who don't know, is uh, the Pizza Express chain actually have a number of concert venues, which are very fancy and high-end in their basements around London and the UK. And it's become at the forefront of the UK soul scene as one of the venues you have to play. So we were given a Monday night in January, the most depressing night of the year, I found out afterwards. And, you know, I put the pedal to the metal, as they say, let the rubber hit the ground. And I did everything I could to fill out that place because I promised the promoter I would. And we sold out. And then we did it all over again like two, three months later in April. And that was incredible. That would be, yeah, three, four months after. Um, and what was really special, though, was in the front row, there was this young couple who I kind of recognized but didn't, and it took a few songs into the show before I realized who they were. They were this young couple who'd been on their first date a few years ago and had gone to a So Far Sounds. So Far Sounds being the sort of unconventional concert series where you don't know who's going to play, and it takes place in a living room or a warehouse. And I'd met them there like two, three years before the show, and I got chatting to them. They didn't know that I was performing. And then when I went on stage, I mercilessly took took the mickey out of them. But after all these years, they'd come back to my show, and they were still together. And then very shortly after, he proposed to her. So I'd like to think that it was my music that uh, brought them together and has kept them together. That's amazing. And uh, and have you seen them in any other gigs recently, or...? Well, I can't really say there have been many gigs recently. Also, they have moved uh, wow. out of London. So hopefully they'll those, book me for the wedding. Those, uh, those sort of fans tend to stay with you for a long time, in, in my experience. They sort of stick with you, and they're always, always there to sort of chime in and, and, and you know, promote your stuff. They're the sort of people that really you really need as a fan, you know, someone as a musician, to, as an artist, to communicate with people like that's really special it's very very true uh, i think artists these days needs need fans like that because very much the climate of how we are now is not so much about being the musician anymore it's about being a personality but a personable personality that people can relate to as a human being i think long gone are the days of uh, artist mystique and the idea that uh, we're all these larger than life people which if i'm perfectly honest is kind of why i got into this i've always wanted to be larger than life uh, this quarantine diet right now is definitely helping me with that. Uh, <laughs> but, but you know, it's very, very important now because the way that we interact with musicians and the way that people interact with musicians is on social media. It can be a very alienating and isolating experience. And so what you're told now by all the seminars and all the top secrets of Insta and Facebook is to show people what you're like behind the curtain. And to be perfectly honest, behind the curtain, for me, is just more music. It's just more and more playing, working on songs, writing music, mixing, producing. But it's all the boring stuff, all the all the 5 a.m. emails you're writing and all the Photoshop editing and, and video editing and and uh, going through contracts and all that kind of stuff. It never ends. Oh, no. And... Um can you um can you maybe walk us through like a like a, a typical week as a performer for you and as a as a performing musician in North London? What's what's what sort of the typical thing you would do from week to week? Well, honestly, it kind of varies. Uh, everything that happens is often completely by chance or by accident. Uh, you know, I tend to live one of those kind of lives where I don't go and look for adventure. It just always seems to find me i mean i might usually have one gig or i might have you know one or two gigs a week one being uh like a covers gig at a restaurant just to make a little money try out a few songs another thing might be a local bar you know i got to really near where i live a great little bar called the spiritual bar um who i'm actually doing a live stream for in a few weeks uh local bar and chalk farm which is a great place to go and just try out some new material uh, engage with uh, different audiences because they have a great clientele that comes and goes of of uh, music lovers and 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 uh, and all kinds of people who, who come through there who really seem to be enjoying the music um but other times you know i can just end up in some fancy private members club meeting some music industry person who wants to who wants to you know just chat or whatever and then like i'll tell you what's really random 
I was on Instagram the other day, and I saw some guy just posting pictures of his Soul Music record collection, and I really liked some of the more rare records he had, and I liked a bunch of them. I looked at his story. He was doing a Spotify playlist, and I said, ooh, maybe you'd like my song. She's got something about her, uh, and maybe you'd like to add it to your playlist. And he says, I play it to him. He loves it, and he says, you know what? I've actually started a small label of just vinyl releases, and I love that song, and we want to, I want to release it on a vinyl, and so we've now made a deal, and she's got something about her, is avail- my music is now going to be available for the first time on vinyl, we're already taking pre-orders, and if I may say so, I'm blown away by the amount of set pre-orders sales that we have already had, it's uh, very, very heartwarming, it's all from like the UK soul community, from all over the country, and even in Australia and America, and uh, mainland Europe as well. And uh, just a little plug, if you would like to get that, you can get that from dannytoman.bandcamp.com or just from my website, dannytoman.com. Get it on vinyl. That's very exciting. That was random. Yeah, no, that's very exciting. It's, uh, it seems that uh, vinyl, is still, vinyl is still pushing back into the mainstream, which, which is very interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. I think people want to hear... Well, I don't know. Here's the thing. The opposite, the way that most people hear music now, I was thinking about this, because I was mixing a song for a cover video that I'm going to be putting on Instagram. And when I finish mixing it, I have to listen to it on my phone, because most people are going to be watching it on their phone. And on the phone, you get no bass. The top end is rolled off. It it sounds uh, like the French would say, le garbage. Garbage. Um, And do you know what vinyl is the most accurate representation in my in my mind, and I believe scientifically, of how the music sounds in a studio. It's how it should sound. And I've always that's the thing. The music I first heard was always on vinyl, and it's always been a dream of mine to be on vinyl. It's it's curious too because I think the vinyl sort of cues into that aesthetic of like soul music as well, isn't it? A lot of a lot of vinyl is now about is it's because now music is so ubiquitous across everything and everyone can listen to music all day for free. I think if you if you cue into that aesthetic of like that heritage and vintage sort of sound, it makes sense that vinyl's like tapping into that. You find a lot of artists like Jack White and those sort of people are, are you know producing a lot of vinyl content. So you're really sort of marketing to an aesthetic and and like an idea of what it should be rather than, you know, it it doesn't even really matter. Obviously, you're making soul music, but there are pop bands and stuff that release vinyl and they're trying to cue into that aesthetic as well, which I think is is both cool and horrible. Well, that's that's kind of what the issue I have with Record Store Day is. Um, In its earlier days, it was very much just about rare songs that may be like B-side, old B-sides that have gone long unreleased and then a few years into it I believe Five Seconds of Summer released something and so at the front of this you know I'd look at the queues and there'd be your usual queue of, of sort of shall we say 35 to 55 year old men you know waiting to get their I don't know punk B-side from the vaults collection then at the front it would be like a group of young women to go and buy their five seconds of summer vinyl. But here's the thing. I have no problem with that because it's encouraging them, hopefully, to actually open up those packages and listen to them and experience a new form of music. Hopefully, they're not just buying it to then sell it on eBay at a higher price. You know, if it can be accessible to people, then that's a, that's a good thing, I would say. Well, I know, I know, speaking as an old man now, the one thing I do actually really miss about music is actually looking at the cover art and looking inside the liner and seeing like who produced things because a lot of like that would yep. actually guide my listening taste a lot was like who was a producer where was it recorded who played like if, if you had session musicians who was who was the drummer like who was a, who who played second you know tenor sax or whatever on that track that would actually really guide your listening taste a lot more and i just i you know i, I wonder how much of that is well, i guess it's kind of I guess that's why they call it an album, you know, because it's a bit like a photo album. It's a snapshot, especially if you've got the big gatefold covers and you'll often have a collection of pictures of the artist or you'll have a big blurb written by the press officer, which kind of sets the scene. Um, and it's, it's a fun experience. I mean, CDs, you could you could get that with a magnifying glass if, if you have it. But now that's that's all gone. I think on iTunes, sometimes some artists do offer like a PDF document that goes with it, but... You know, how often does anyone really look at them? Our computers are swamped with PDF documents that we're never going to read. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's curious. I think I think maybe in a, in a certain way, sort of your uh, social media has taken the the place of that. So rather than because as you say, like rather than you have like an album or an LP from an artist from Stax Record or something, and basically you had to buy the magazines and you'd have to look. Uh, you know, it was really hard to find information. Now you can find out what you know size shoes they wear if you really want to. Most of that's done through the social media thing. So I think, you know, I, I think it's always with these things. It's a little bit of give and take. It's very interesting how sort of technology sort of makes everything more accessible. But as you say, it sort of takes a little bit of the mystique and the mystery away from some artists, which can be, I don't know, a detriment sometimes. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people say to me never meet your heroes. Um, I've never really wanted to meet my heroes. Um, I'm happy to sort of separate the music from, from the man as we are. Although having said that I did once meet little Richard and that was fabulous. Wow. And the temptations, which, which was, which was pretty amazing. Well, not all the temptations, just Otis Williams, the founding and only surviving member. Um, and they were lovely guys. So, you know, but I, I get what you mean, but I, I, don't want to meet them usually to keep that mystique going absolutely yeah um so as a as someone who does you know a lot of gigs what what what's sort of your what would you say is your favorite sort of venue to play do you have a specific venue that you love you mentioned spiritual bar but like is there a type of venue that you love is there a type of venue that you don't love i have so many different criteria of what goes into a good gig. So I could be playing at a really cool venue and I might end up not enjoying it. I mean, I've, I've played on some big stages, you know, I've not only have I done the O2 arena, but I've also done, you know, I've done, uh, um, I did the roundhouse, but uh, unfortunately that wasn't, that wasn't the most fun gig. Um, it was, it was like a function. Um, and, and, you know, the circumstances made it so that it wasn't, it wasn't that great. I've also done some real hole-in-the-wall type shows in the middle of nowhere, like on the outskirts of London or or out of town or whatever, and they can end up being the most fun ones, even if there's like only like four people listening or paying attention. If they are taking something from it, if one of them comes up to me afterwards and says, that really meant something to me, like you, that was really special, like your voice is incredible or whatever, that, that makes it all worthwhile. But if I was to give you... Um, sort of a standard type of gig that I really enjoy. It's when it's me and the whole band, you know, the Love Explosion, all seven of us, and we're all definitely getting paid properly. That's always very important. <laughs> and the, the sound is good. The sound is good. The audience are there to see us. Um, and we're kicking it. And sort of we're in, we've done sort of three quarters of the show. We've got the last quarter left and in that last quarter we like to ramp up the energy beyond because i'm not really a ballad kind of guy or a slow song kind of guy i've got a few but they're very far and few in between we like to be on an upward trend and then when we get to that last quarter just ramp things up to the nth degree and just watch the people go crazy that that, that is the perfect gig to me Outstanding. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. Just on, just on that. I, 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 I remember watching one of your videos, and it had a wrestling theme. Can you, can you tell me something about that? How did that come about? Well, funny you should mention that. Or is it? I don't know. I will. I will. You can dub in some laughter afterwards, and maybe, <laughs> and maybe, maybe it would be. Maybe I would. I would find that. I don't know what I'm saying. Basically, I started going to wrestling school at the beginning of 2018 because I was on a real health kick in my life. And, you know, you can go to the gym and you can run on the treadmill all you want, uh, but it's not very fun. So I thought, why not try professional wrestling? And so I went to a wrestling school in Brixton and you turn up and they say, okay, first thing you're going to do is give us 20 push-ups. So you do 20 push-ups. Okay, now you're going to do 20 squats. You do 20 squats. Okay, now 20 crunches. So you do 20 crunches. Okay, now I want you to do 10 of each. And so you do, okay, we go, we're cool and gun. Okay, now I want you to do 30 of the squats, push-ups and everything. And so after you've done that and you're completely exhausted, drenched and dripping, okay, now time to get into the ring and throw yourself onto this, onto these planks of wood supported by steel beams and only covered in a thin layer of canvas and throw yourself on it and try not to break your neck. And it was painful and it was exhilarating and... I knew that I had to make a music video at some point of me having a wrestling match um, because 
in the music video, it actually describes something that happened in training. I actually fractured my elbow while wrestling a trainer of mine. And so we decided to film the return fight. That's, that's awesome. And, you know, he picks me up, he picks me upside down, drops me on my head, flips me over. And we had to film those, all those different takes like 20 times each from all the different angles. And, you know, we got, we got it done in like two hours. Like I've done other music videos. The wrestling one was relatively painless, despite <laughs> all, the, all the bumps and the bruises. That's amazing. And the fact, and you know, probably the most painful thing. No, that's not true. It was very painful wrestling, but uh, I also got my back waxed for that video. I don't oh. know if I should be saying that. You know, that was, uh, that was a new experience. Oh, my God. You know, I figured no, no one wants to see a hairy back in a wrestling music video. That sounds horrific. Um, <laughs> so, as someone Olga, been, Olga had very soft hands, though. <laughs> as someone who's been performing um, around London for a long time, um, how have things sort of changed? How, how have you seen the London music scene change over sort of the last decade or so? Well... First of all, there's definitely much less and less performing. There are less venues giving opportunities for people to play. The budgets are being slashed all the time. Less actual venues seem to exist. And the ones, the places where people tend to be able to play are a lot of pubs, which I think has always been the case. Um, pubs and, and bars where they, the people in charge just want music. They don't really know what they want. They don't really realize the amount of work that goes into making music into amplifying music you know so you ask them questions about what you need to bring in terms of pa system or amplifiers and they generally don't seem to know i think i've been quite lucky in general but you know i have been given the runaround by a few places but i think that is all part and parcel i think the industry has gone more and more online and you know that can be seen you know it used to be the case you just get screwed by promoters now it seems that everyone online is trying to uh, get your money for some reason you get all these offers of tutorials for um you know how to grow your instagram followers as a musician or how to um you know increase your spotify plays there's this one website that's been doing nothing but sending me emails for the last week i don't know if you've heard of them and you know i might bleep this out not to give them any light of publicity but they're called number one music they send me they've, they've sent me emails pretending to be fans saying oh i love this song of yours i would love to hear it on this website and then another email saying Oh, you just need to... Oh, you've asked for a password reset. But I've never asked for a password reset. Like, they're trying to... I even clicked on unsubscribe in one of these emails, and it goes to, oh, you're nearly finished from setting up your account, which I'm sure is completely illegal. So what I did was I just changed the email address that was already in there to uh, one with a four-letter word in it at gmail.com, and hopefully I won't be hearing from them again. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh I get uh, I get people jumping on my website and submitting the, the the contact forms all the time, and they're just it's just bots or just trolls just trying to get you to answer them. And then if you if you get back to them, it's just there's nothing. Yeah. They're just trying to grab your information. It's yeah the the online sort of the online playing field is a bit of a minefield at the moment. What about apps? I tend to get tons of people who are developing apps getting in touch and asking to be one of their founding members. And I figure it's just because they want my content. Like, no offense, but if I want people to look at my content, I'm going to get them to go on the, the ones that actually matter, the ones that count, rather than some little app. And there seem to be so many in development all the time that fail. Yeah, well, I think that's, I think, to be, to be honest, I think that's basically a way just for, you know, that's, that's a new market that's developing. People want to have these new streaming services and these new, these platforms where people can listen to your music. And I think, you know, people are just, they don't care about the music, like, obviously, they just, they just want to make sure that they snap, you know, they get a little bit of your intellectual property. And I'm sure there's backdoors yeah. in there to, to grab rights and all that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, I get those all the time as well. I just ignore them, to be honest. It's, yeah, it's... Uh, You've always got to read the terms and conditions. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think our society in general would be a little bit more, a uh, little bit more generally b better off if we actually stopped to read the terms and conditions occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so um, now that we've had a bit of bit of a chat about you and your career in general we're gonna have a bit of chat about like the current crisis that's happening with the with the COVID-19 stuff um sure. so all the gigs basically 
we are now in week one of May, and we've um, we've been in sort of lockdown in the UK for about six weeks, something like that. About six weeks. I think so. I've I've lost count, to be perfectly honest. It just weekends don't really seem to count anymore. It's it's just one long it's one long sort of time period, really. It's yeah. it's. Uh, and so I wonder the, how they'll reflect on it in history. Oh well, I think uh, I think not well. Um, no. With 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 your basically your your gigs drying up, did you have any other income, and how's it affected your sort of your day to day income, your day to day life? Well, I would like to think that I have actually been quite fortunate. I've started teaching guitar lessons online, and so that's helped quite a lot. I also, right at the beginning of this, was, well, actually in, what, the second week of April, PRS were giving out their uh, their uh, distribution checks, and, uh, you know, you know for, uh, perf- they're performing rights checks to different songwriters and everything, and that has been very, very helpful to me. I actually got another, a few other royalty checks over the time. Um, you know, because as I mentioned earlier, I do music for TV and adverts, and also I have played some large gigs in my time, and they can take a while for the money to come through. So I've had that help and sustain what I'm doing at the time being, but also my expenses are, to be honest, pretty low. I like to buy food, and I like to buy equipment, and uh, I'm, I'm doing all right with that. And I've managed to keep myself very busy by recording a lot of cover versions. I've did a, did a cover of uh, Don't Look Any Further, the older 80s Motown classic with my friend Louise Golby, where she recorded her parts, I recorded mine. You can find that on Facebook and Instagram on either one of our channels. And actually, coming up very, very soon, I've managed to get some of the Love Explosion, my band, to record their parts in isolation. And I'm currently mixing them at the moment with video that I'm going to be putting out very soon. On top of that, I've got some live stream gigs coming up. I'm also appearing on a, on a few YouTube channels. And interviews like this, you know, it's, I think... I, the first week of it, I, of the lockdown, I sat in bed and, well, actually, you know, I'd like to think I was quite productive. I spent my entire time on the app Duolingo and I'm teaching myself how to speak German. Nice one. You know, so, I've always wanted to be able to speak it. And so now, now I'm, well, I wouldn't sound fluent now, uh, but I can do a little bit of German. But after that, I decided, no, I need to be active and I can't let this affect me because I think. After, when this is over, uh, the live scene is not going to be the same of what it was, and it's going to take a long time to rebuild, and it might not even be rebuilt to the level it's currently at. Yeah, it's kind of, um, I mean, I've because I, I have children, I've just got notified that, that they're talking about maybe opening some of the primary schools at the start of June, um, which is encouraging, I guess. Um Also a little bit terrifying. Um, but yeah, I think what you're saying is true. I mean, for me, when I... When the first sort of two weeks of the crisis, I just basically went into sort of a creative coma where I just didn't really do very much at all. I think it was just sort of, you just sort of scared and a, a little bit sort of, you know, just a general low burning anxiety about what's going to happen. Did you, did you encounter that? Yes, I, I would call it more of an existential dread personally. The idea that, well, I could write some music now, but does it really matter? You know, th- and it puts a lot of our personal problems, I think, into perspective about, oh, do I have enough followers on this website or am I going to sell enough tickets for this? It's all essentially very meaningless. And it kind of goes forward to show that you should be doing the music that you do because you love it. I mean, you should be doing it to make money as well. You should be trying to make money and sustain a living and be comfortable. But uh, it makes you realize that you should be doing it for... I don't want to say noble reasons because it's way too pretentious, but I think it goes to show that if you actually really love what you do, it will find a way regardless of the problems in the world. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right there. Did you um, did you have a place to record before this happened or did you have to set something up? And what? how, how did that sort of work out for you? Well, I tend to record in studios around London, uh, you know, I like my. I always wanted my music to be on vinyl, and so I've always, when I've had the money, tried to record my stuff onto uh, analog tape. You know, which is the the old the old fashioned, better sounding way of doing it. Obviously, I can't record onto analog tape now, but I have, you know, at home 
I have instruments and I have a little interface, a few microphones, a few bits of percussion here and there, some software that I've kind of collected over the years. And so I'm able to, to make do, but it's really calling into, um, calling into question my mixing abilities. You know, I spent one year, I spent one year at music college doing the music production course before I decided to go to a real university to get like a, you know, I, I felt I wanted to have a proper degree. Um, just because. And uh, I really should have paid more attention at those mixing lectures because I, I cannot remember anything. <laughs> compression is key. I think compression is the one for me. It's always the ones that the guy, the good mixers are the ones that know how to use compression without over compressing. Exactly. It, it really is an art and a science. Oh, and completely. You can watch all the YouTube tutorials you want about all the different software and how to use it. But they're not going to tell you their secrets. You know, I think I was watching one about how to EQ your, your master. And one of them was, the first one was like, be mindful. Or, you know, have a, have a some, something very, very esoteric, which doesn't really apply. Oh, no, it was, it was, don't expect, no, step number one for the perfect EQing of your master. Don't expect it to be perfect. Cool, bro. Why am I watching this video? Yeah, cool, bro. That's a day. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd just be switching it <laughs> off as well. <laughs> yeah. Have you been? Um, have you been doing any online? Like, have, have you upped your online streaming content? You mentioned some Instagram things, and you're going to do a live stream for another venue this but, but soon. But have you been doing sort of yeah. daily, weekly concerts at home? Have you been doing anything like that? Not particularly. No. <coughs> Pardon me. Not particularly. No. I have already done one live streaming gig uh, for Spiritual Bar because they're trying to raise money. It's a fabulous little venue and, you know, the the donations go to keeping it up and running for when this is all over. Um, and I was very grateful to do it for that. Honestly, first of all, a lot of my time is now taken up with uh, dealing with the, the administration of, of uh, working with a record label to make sure this vinyl goes out smoothly and, and with no with no issues. Um, but with the live performance on the streaming, it's, it's a very strange experience because, and I think you would agree as a, as a performer that so much of what makes a show is the interaction with, with other people. And it's very, very difficult to interact with a heart emoji or, or a thumbs up emoji. It's not the same. You finish a song and there's no applause or even booing. By the way, I'm a big advocate of bringing booing back. I mean, I say that now. Now know that uh, that's going to kick me in the teeth at some point in my life. But and I don't boo people, honestly. You know, no, I don't boo people. Um, but I, I do. I always do believe in honesty. When a musician friend asks me what I think of a particular song they send me, I will always be horribly honest. You know, because I always think it's better to be right than to have friends. And that's uh, <laughs> explains a lot about me, I imagine. <laughs> Words to live by, maybe I don't know. Um, yeah, I find I find that the the live the live situation. It's it's one of the reasons I moved to this country is because um, in in my home country of Australia, that the context for live music has kind of disappeared a little bit. It's people don't tend to interact with music or musicians very much. They tend to just keep you at arm's length and they don't really want to have anything to do with you. And one of the reasons that I love playing in the UK and London especially is the interaction you get with the people and, and the reactions. If The analogy that I always give is in Australia, if you play a song like in your own particular style, somebody will say to you, well, why can't you just play it like the original? Whereas a lot of times in the in it's in the in London especially, people if you do something that's really kind of cool, people will go, Oh, that was kind of cool. So I think, yeah, I, I think that's probably what I miss the most about like playing in London, the, the, the actual interface with people on a one-to-one on -one basis. I mean, the interface with people on a one-to-one one -one basis, definitely. But it's funny you say that because I find a lot of that in London as well. I find that uh, in London, a lot of people are too cool to... Um, you know, you'll get them all standing at the back of the room at the beginning of a concert around the UK. Different story. I'm quite upset that I actually had a few gigs that got cancelled that were outside of London that were that have now sort of been and gone, as it were, because it's always fun to play for places which don't have all the 
for people who love music but they don't have all the the chances to go and see live music like we do have here in London. Um, and, you know, I've done a few covers gigs and maybe it's not the same as, oh, why don't you do it in this style? But I could be playing all my my soul music and all my Motown covers and then they'll still come up to me and say, not always, but a few people will still come up and say, oh, why can't you play Ed Sheeran or Wonderwall oh, yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, there's, you always have those people, but I think... I think uh, and I think it's changing slowly in Australia. Not often, though. No, I think I think it's changing a little bit in Australia now. But uh, like the context for live music is a lot more important here. I think in the UK, I think generally the appreciation for the arts and culture is a bit more. It's held in a bit higher esteem. So if you're good at what you do here, you can be a musician or an artist, and people will go. Oh, oh, that's cool. Like that, that's that's great. Whereas a lot of times, and I mean, you know, I'm, I mean this in the kindest possible way, but a lot of times in Australia, people would say to you, "No, but but what do you really do? Like, what's your real job?" So I think I think that's a different. It's funny. Here. I once had an incident like that. I once I remember I was playing at um, a fancy sort of post-production studio for a Christmas party or something, and I was one of the acts on the bill, and some as we would say in German, in, in German, some Aschloch came up to me and said, so what are you going to do when, when this all fails? When, when, when the music doesn't work out for you? And this was more like four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, I didn't say anything. I just went on stage and, uh, you know, did my thing, brought the house down and then uh, met his girlfriend after. <laughs> Revenge is, is best served cold, I think. Is that, is that the term? Oh, I don't do anything cold. <laughs> Some like it hot. Um, so just as a, I'm, I'm trying to ask this of most, most people I'm interviewing, if this situation continues for, you know, six to eight, 18 months, or if it looks like we're basically, you know, live music venues might not be coming back for a while, do you have any idea what you might do? Would you ever consider changing careers? I think that I've become so entrenched in music that whatever happens, I'm always going to be writing and recording and releasing music. That's who I am. And I know, I don't believe it's some kind of higher ordained mission for me. I don't, I always hate it when I hear other people say this. And so I feel that I would be a hypocrite if I said the same thing about myself, even though I really do think that. But... I feel that what might happen is new avenues in the music business might open up, like I've always fancied possibly working in, in management or promoting or, or publicity. I think, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that making and recording music has to drop or even performing music has to drop. I think I wonder if completely new when we are all allowed out again different kinds of gigs are going to start forming which might have very very small overheads and might be a fun new way of performing like almost like kind of like like a peep show kind of a peep show kind of performance of music where everyone's in these little boxes and then it kind of and you're behind a curtain and they have to see through the screen and instead of a I I'm, don't want to get too X-rated on your podcast here, so I so I won't go further. But I would not be surprised if new and interesting ways of performing music become invented out of necessity from this. I mean, I have actually heard, I don't know how true this is, and no one can really know for sure, in terms of theatre performance, they're not thinking about anything starting again until next year, sort of early next year. And you've got to think that gigs is going to be on the, la the bottom of the list of priorities with all these people close together getting sweaty coughing spreading illnesses all like hooking up all kind of things that could share germs so hopefully the new avenues of performance come up and uh, and you know if not and it all goes really horribly wrong i will finally become a psychotherapist and i will be sort of a doctor and my parents will be really really proud <laughs> that's a good take on it mate it's a uh the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Not to say that they, <laughs> not to say that they aren't already proud of me. Not to say that they aren't already proud of me. Just saying. Yeah, well, I was talking to someone recently, and they were basically, um, you know, we were talking about, 
the, the changing landscape for a performers. And uh, he was mentioning that the fact that people, people now see nothing wrong with streaming music for free. Like people, you know, if you, if you were someone in the early 2000s before, before, um, before you could get music pretty much anytime, anywhere for basically no money, you would look at what we do now with Spotify and those sort of things as like, that's amazing. Like, and so what uh, my, my fear is that people will get so used to streaming stuff online all the time from, you know, pretty high quality artists that when it comes around to paying for music or paying for anything, people might be like, oh, Man, I could just sit home and watch this, you know. And as you say, with the staged nature of performance coming back, you know, maybe maybe that's also a good thing. Maybe that's maybe there'll be a way that we can actually tap into that to actually make performing better for all of us. Because I mean, really, the 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 drag about the gigs is the getting to the show, the setting up, the getting the packing up at night time, the getting home. So maybe if if people can figure out a really good, organic, yeah. authentic way to put on these shows, maybe it'll be a new, a whole new avenue. That's, that's what I hope anyway. I mean, I hope that as well. And I was quite optimistic in when I was talking about it two minutes ago, but when I think about it, you know, they're going to be people who take advantage of it. I mean, there's one particular company uh, who I'm not going to name who, you know, kind of do that at the moment, uh, but I'm not going to say anything because, you know, legal reasons. I'll tell you after the show. <laughs> and anyone who personally and anyone who personally listens to this and uh, emails me and says, who are you talking about, Danny? I will happily tell you. Um, but it's probably not good to have it on public record. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, funnily enough, I feel that it's already going that way, that people are more likely to listen to music on Spotify than go to gigs. And when they listen to music, chances are they're already using another app at the same time rather than just sitting and listening to the music in the first place, um, which is why vinyl is great because it's a whole experience where you kind of, if you've got up, had to change over the side, put the needle on, dust the dust the vinyl, everything, you're going to want to invest in your time listening to music. Well, just just to your point, it it, it does make me it does make me think that because I try and always think about it as if like because I have I have children, so I think about it as if you're the young person now. So, for instance, my oldest daughter, she is able to discover music at an astonishing rate like i remember when i was younger and there was not a streaming service you could do that on you would have to literally spend huge amounts of time finding one artist that you would like and then a lot of times you would listen to that artist even if what they were putting out wasn't great because you were so in in such a great relationship in your mind with that artist i think you know, people people make fun of you know people make fun of like Generation X or Generation you know the the new generations, you know. But I think it may be in some ways they're more discerning than I was when I was younger. I don't know. I don't know. I think it. Uh, I think it varies a lot. I mean, I was very much of the generation where. I still went to HMV and bought CDs and, you know, you're buying 15 songs at a time on a CD and you're often just going by, oh, I've heard this was cool. You have to buy it before you can hear it. And then obviously uh, all the different uh, illegal streaming websites came out. Uh, Napster. I can't remember any of their names. Napster. Because, you know, oh, that was, yes. Uh, yeah, Napster. I, I, I'd never heard of them. Or a Shazam or LimeWire. Ne- no clue. Never heard of them. Um, but... An interesting statistic I heard about those websites is the people who downloaded the most music from them were also the ones who still went and actually bought the most CDs, bought the concert tickets, bought the merchandise. Spotify, in its regards, is kind of a cop-out. Streaming music is very much kind of a cop-out in that I think because you're paying your $9.99 a month or whatever it is, you feel that you've you've got the right to it and, and that's all you need from it rather than you want to go and further invest in those in those artists that you've been listening to yeah i'm I'm not going to do my usual rant about spotify because i'm bored of myself to be honest but i uh i I have a lot of i have a lot of mixed feelings about those streaming companies Mm. i think in a lot of ways they're fantastic because i constantly discover new artists and new styles of music that i haven't that i wouldn't actually have access to in other ways but it just 
it does make me curious how it affects people that are quote unquote digital natives that are young people that have grown up with it. I think it, it yeah. affects the way it affects the value you place on art. If you never have to really pay for it. And it's changing the music as well. I've always wanted to make albums. Albums are no longer a viable thing anymore. No, It's a sad, but true thing. At most you can do an EP, but albums don't exist. Also consider the fact that who owns Spotify? I know that universal music have, a fairly significant stake in it. I know that Sony have a have a have a decent stake in Spotify. What for artists is the most important thing about Spotify? What is the thing that is going to break you as a musician? Is getting onto a Spotify playlist, official Spotify playlist. That is what matters now. Who make these playlists? What are the interests of these playlists? They are the interests of the major labels to promote their artists, to get them in the years. I I had my single come out last year and there was one DJ in London on BBC Radio London called Robert Elms who absolutely loved the song and he played it maybe 10, 20 times. And I think the fact that it got that much sort of coverage just in London, Spotify took notice of and then one day that song ended up in a thousand people's inboxes, like or like the Discovery Mix or whatever. So it was not on an official playlist but they took notice and then it got thousands and thousands of streams which which is a, is a wonderful thing it didn't you know it bypassed the playlist system but there's so much great music out there that is getting unnoticed all the time and it's when you've got millions and billions of songs to go through how are people really ever going to discover them yeah a friend of mine a friend of mine was about to release well has just released a new album or new song and he described it as just basically without without the proper without the proper mechanism behind you it's like pissing into the wind because it's just this so pissing much, into the wind. There's just so much out there, but I mean, I think that is literally what I say as well. Yeah, Same expression. It's um, but also like if you look back at, you know, the the reason that the music well, there's two reasons that the music is un- distribution service has undergone such a major transformation. One is the ubiquitousness of technology now and streaming and being able to download things. The 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 second thing is the fact that record companies. They completely bottled it. Like, they bottled it. They had such a great thing that they had in their hands. And, and as, you know, humans being what they are, it got away from the actual art of it and it became about the retail side of it. And I think if, if the record yeah. companies had have played their hand a little bit better around the early 2000s, there would still be there – would, there, would there would be a more equitable split of the money for the artists – and there would be a better way of engaging with the app because there's always a gatekeeper. Now the gatekeeper is a Spotify algorithm. Before, it was a, it was a record company. So, I mean, and you don't see the gatekeeper so much now because it's kind of behind the scenes a lot more. So there's, yeah, it, it's, I don't know which one's better, to be honest. Everything has their um, everything has their pros and cons, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's very, very true what you're saying. There's a great book that I read um, I believe it was actually called Appetite for Destruction, the decline of the record industry, is how in the early 2000s and late 90s they were overcharging so much for CDs that there really was the case of the revenge of the, the streamers and the, the illegal downloading websites. I don't really know how much people can do now and apart from change how much these labels can do to regain control, apart from obviously owning stakes in these streaming platforms. Um, I think that we're just seeing in terms a real paradigm shift in terms of the new media and the new new media. And we're seeing this in society as well, very much so, where you know you can't go shopping anymore, but you can still buy stuff on Amazon and you know you can still use PayPal to transfer money and you can watch uh, Netflix, you've got all these new companies that are becoming so integral to, to modern life, whereas the things that were actually pretty current and important to our lives, even less than 10 years ago, all seem to be getting phased out. And maybe that's just because of the lockdown of the, and the pandemic. Um, but it, we are, are, the way we consume and products and entertainment and everything is changing and is becoming commodified, but not just commodified, but it's getting commodified into a very, very small hub of units so there's very very little uh uh diversity shall we say the thing i the thing i well i won't say the thing that keeps me up at night but the thing that i worry about in all of this is that at the end of this uh, you know depending on how long it takes a year or six months or three months that we come out of this and we've got basically five viable companies 
because a lot of smaller independent traders are going down. And I'm starting to read stuff a lot about a lot of these disaster capitalists, investors are basically forcing smaller business owners into situations that they're going to go out of business. This pandemic has really sort of put the accelerator onto sort of, you know, front street retail shopping has been fading for years and years and years due to online, basically due to one company, Amazon. Amazon is basically trying to kill Main Street. Like, I live in Muswell Hill, and the Main Street of Muswell Hill is a bus, usually a bustling retail. Really? Yeah. The, the, the main street of Muswell Hill is a bus. I had no idea. Yeah, just, I used to. Just up the road, mate. Um, uh, absolutely. North, North London as well. Yeah. We'll talk when this is over. I've got some questions for you. Yeah, cool, man. Um, but yeah, that, that Amazon is basically, it's a project to consolidate all retail into a very, very small band. And this COVID-19 crisis has really put the accelerator onto those drivers. And I worry that at the end of this, because most Western countries, most of the industrialized countries haven't dealt with this crisis very well, the UK, North America, big parts of Europe have really been affected by it. I just, I'm a little bit, I have a lot of trepidation about what's happening afterwards. So, yeah. I, I, well, it's obvious. It's very, it's very obvious what's going to happen. All these small businesses are going to go out of business. All the big businesses are going to go out of business unless... They do all their trading through Amazon. And then you know what Amazon are going to do? They're going to up their prices. And now, do you ever watch Black Mirror? Oh, yeah. Did you ever watch... Do you remember the second episode back when it was on Channel 4 called uh, 15 Million Merits? Mm-hmm. And now, not to uh, not to name drop too much, but the star of that episode, Daniel Kaluuya, who went on to get an Oscar nomination for the movie Get Out, is actually a good friend of mine from school. Um, oh, nice. Lovely guy. Does... Lovely guy, deserves all the success that he's had. He's been working so hard for his whole life to be a great actor, and it's great to see that he's achieving it. And in that world, we all live in our own little pods where if we want to watch something, we have to watch the adverts. You know, we are always constantly grinding on these uh, exercise bikes to gain points. I feel that is uh, quite a Charlie Brooker. He got a very, very scary prediction of the future, which I think is very, very viable. Well, I, well, I mean, my hope, and you know, I th- I th- we've got to start wrapping it up because I'm aware of your time constraints here. The my hope is that um, you know, we people will wake up a little bit about this sort of thing, and maybe it might actually you know, sort of have a bit of a dawning on some people that hang on a minute, like the things that are important to me aren't necessarily commodities. They're actually like doing things with my family, meeting my friends, talking to people one-on-one. And my hope is that that will become more prominent, that people will actually place more real value on those things. Do you have any hope for the sort of the arts and the music scene in that regard? Well, I do feel after you saying that I have to make – I have to say something, which is that I've been quite fortunate during this time to be able to work, to be able to still write and record and create music and be in touch with other musicians. But what has actually been really, really good for the soul and and nourishing is actually having my friends out there who I'm able to call or or who are able to call me and and just uh, be able to deal with this together. And it made me realize how important my relationships are with people. Um, what are my hopes for the for the art scene in the, in the future? I don't know. Maybe people will realize how closed off and how boxed in we all are, and they will take more time to uh, go and experience new things. Like if they haven't seen Danny Toman playing live, they will go and buy a ticket. They will they will follow me on the Instagram at Danny Toman. That's D A N Y T O E M A N. Follow me on the Spotify, or maybe not even on the Spotify. Go and buy my go and buy my vinyl record. You see, you've got to hustle. You've got to hustle these things because. Uh, that that is that is where we are right now, and I try. I should try not to sound so shameless about it, but it is a case of survival, and we all deal with this pandemic. We're all dealing with this pandemic in different ways, and I would like to choose to deal with it in a positive way, where I think about the music and put that first. Great. Well, I think that's a, that's actually and my friend. That's that made no sense. That's probably a great place to uh, start winding it down. So, if people want to. If people want to check out more of your stuff, it's basically Danny Toman everywhere, isn't it? Instagram, Spotify. Yes. Instagram, Facebook. The only, everything is always .com forward slash Danny Toman or DannyToman.com. 
and it's toe is in foot and man is in woman danny toman but this this guy's all man believe me <laughs> don't know why i said that on a podcast but i'm on the instagram the spotify the facebook i've even got a twitter i don't know if anyone uses twitter anymore um you can go and see my every once in a while occasional rant about something that doesn't matter but mainly just keep in touch if you like what you hear reach out because i will generally get back in touch with you and i do love feedback and uh, do you have a name for the for the new release yet, or should people just look out for your um, socials to check on where they can get your vinyl? Oh, for the vinyl, well, it is a release of my song. She's got something about her, which has proven to be, which came out uh, digitally last year, sort of mid to end of last year, and it's proven to be really, really popular song on stage and live and on Spotify. But I think for the true, authentic experience of listening to it, how it should sound, you're going to want to get that vinyl. And that is available through my website, dannytoman.com. Great. Well, thanks, Danny. She's got something about her on vinyl to be released soon. Um, please go and check out Danny's stuff. And when this is all over, go and check him at a, at a live show. He's a really great performer and uh, an awesome, awesome. Actually, he, has, he hasn't talked about it much, but also a great guitar player. So, uh, yeah, it's been lovely to chat to you, Danny. And uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll see you at a gig soon. Thank you very much, Ben. I really appreciate it. See you on the other side. If you've enjoyed the podcast, feel free to head over to the PayPal link attached to the description in the show notes and throw us a couple of pounds. You can also head over to my website, www.beneatonmusic.com and check out all the stuff that I do. I'd love for you to leave a comment or get back to me on Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, all under the name Ben Eaton Music. Have a great one. We'll see you next time.